Let's pray. Father, before I ask for what I want to ask for, I do confess on behalf of us as your people that we are inadequate, that we have fallen short, that uh, there have been times and things this week that have been a greater treasure to us than you. Um, There are many things internally and externally that have happened us this week that aren't becoming of your children. So would you please forgive us? Would you please cleanse us from iniquity? Would you please use our time with you in the word to grow our desire for truth and for your presence? And so Lord, I ask that you would make us a blessed people, a happy people by your standards, by your call, by your characteristics, by your spirit, that we would truly be satisfied as we look to these things in a way that the world is never satisfied when they look to the things that they look to. And so I just pray that you would uh, cause this hour to be fruitful, cause our time together in your word to bring about great meditation and great thought and great worship. So we look to you now for this, in Jesus' name, amen. So let's preface kind of the second half of the Beatitudes this way, by looking at the uh, big picture. We see that the first Beatitudes that Jesus begins with, as he kind of creates this logical, linear picture of kingdom people, is the, the heart or the spirit position that we are in first when we enter the kingdom. The, the, the poor in spirit, the, the mourning over our own sin and the sins of the world, the, the meekness, the humility... That's our position when we enter the kingdom. That's our position when we see God. That's our position when we see ourselves in light of our Lord. And then he kind of thrusts us forward through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount with that transitional statement in verse 6 that we're happy and blessed when we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have new desires as those who are kingdom people. We don't desire the former things anymore. We We desire new things. And new things to us as natural men and women are righteousness. We we become interested and therefore we gain satisfaction from that interest. And then we come to today where you have verses 7 through 9 and I titled this, What Do the Blessed Do? And in essence, you, you you could call this kind of the the image of God revealed and realized in his people. Now, we do know, right, that that when we are born of the flesh, that we are born in his image. We're made as human beings um, in his image. We have certain aspects 
and attributes that are like him. Never are we God, and in one big true sense, we can never be like God. There is only one, right? We, we rehearse that. We're what they call monotheist, but we believe in the Trinity as one. Okay, We believe in one God, three persons. But there are ways in which God communicates things about himself to those made in his image. And so we think, we feel, we create, not out of nothing like he does, but we create things. We have the capacity to love. We, we can do that as created naturally in his image. But there's a new creation that has to take place. So to, to preface the whole Sermon on the Mount, I think John 3.3 3 is a good place to start, right? If, if you want to see this in people, I mean, first of all, as I say, it's, it's personified in Jesus, period. Fully, truthfully, holy in Jesus. But you see this carried out in his followers, his people? Then he says to Nicodemus in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then again in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you can't see the kingdom of God, you can't enter the kingdom of God, i.e., you can't be a citizen of the kingdom of God unless a new birth is the reality of your soul, of your heart. The Sermon on the Mount has no bearings for the world, no bearing on the world. It can only be true of those who have the Spirit of God. And you can't live out these things unless you are a new creation. I think one, one fact is immediately true about that. You won't have a desire for these things unless you are born again. Verse 6 is not possible unless you have seen God, unless you have experienced his mercy, unless you understand your position there, and unless you have received that mercy, then you have no desire for the things of the kingdom. Righteousness is the thing of the kingdom. That's what makes you an heir. Now, not your righteousness. Jesus' righteousness makes you an heir of the kingdom. He will, God will not have any citizens in his kingdom who are not righteous. That righteousness is based on the righteousness of his son, but they're righteous. So, verses 3 through 5, the foundational posture of, the, of those new creations, and verses 7 through 9, the characteristics of those new creations, the, the image of God. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think when you're looking at um, not only where his people position themselves spiritually and intellectually, but actually what his people do, this has to be foundational. If, if we have experienced the mercy of God, it cannot help but transform you into a merciful person. If you have met those extremes, and, and in, hum, in human terms, we can call the mercy of God extreme. 
I mean, you, you have to realize that your depravity has caused this spiritual deadness in you. That your desire to do everything but seek God has caused a, a chasm to form that is uh, uh, uncrossable. When you get to the depths of that, then you get to the depths of his mercy. And when you get to the depths of his mercy, then you cannot help but be transformed by that. And to communicate that in how you live and how you speak and how you interact, especially with the household of God, but even how you interact with the world. You become merciful people. A few chapters Later in Matthew 9, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. He's quoting Hosea 6, 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Mercy has driven Jesus into the depths of his creation to get into the midst of their filth and not bring his condemnation. He says, you already stand condemned. He's here to enact mercy and grace by giving you pardon and not giving you what you deserve. Matthew 18, 33, this is following a parable where Jesus is explaining that there was this servant who was, who was forgiven his debts, right? I mean, these un, uh, insurmountable debts. And then he turns right around and he is uh, condemning, harsh not merciful. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? That's the key. If God has had mercy on you, then you are able to relate to people in kind. You're able to understand what mercy actually is. And not only that, but you, but you have a desire that overcomes your desire for justice Right and wrath and condemnation, and something begins to overtake that. It's mercy. People, just imagine, small example, somebody rear-ends you in town somewhere. You're going to jump out the car and be like, give me your insurance, this is ridiculous, I don't have time for this, give me your insurance, i got to go, what were you thinking, what were you doing? Or are you going to get out of the car and are you going to look at that person coming out of their car? Are you going to notice their demeanor, their person? Are you going to notice their vehicle and maybe that, what that may tell you about them? And are you going to express kindness and mercy? Are you justified in bringing down the wrath of the law upon them? Sure. But what about mercy? What about mercy? We read in Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You have not transgressed anybody, and nobody has transgressed you greater than you have transgressed God. And what did he do? He opened up the storehouses of the richness of his mercy. It's, 
Anybody ever watch, um, you know, DuckTales or, you know, uh, who's, who's the uncle in uh, DuckTales? Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, right? And he's got the, 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 the vault that's just like a, a sea of gold, right? And he swims in it. Well, God has opened that floodgate for you to go swim in his mercy. And you have no reason to be there other than he's rich. What's that cause you to do? Who's that cause you to be? What kind of reactions does that bring forth in you? Are, are, you, know, are, are you like that guy, in the, that servant in that parable that Jesus told where you, you claim and you have maybe received mercy and then you turn right around and forget? How, how great of mercy has been dispensed upon you? That, that has got to be one of the most grievous errors of a Christian. To forget the gospel when it comes to interacting with their fellow man. It is heartbreaking to watch brothers and sisters be harsh not only with one another, but with people in the world, because they are proclaiming that the gospel has no bearing on their daily reality. We want to be doctrinally sound in how we understand the mercy of God, right? But we want to be expressive in how we live that out. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Everybody who understands the gospel, understands what it is to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, understands the economy of the kingdom is built on mercy. In other words, you don't enter in without mercy. The, God has to pay in mercy upon you for you to get in. Therefore, mercy is foundational to the kingdom. And, and, and that golden rule that we'll get to in a couple chapters in this series is, look, you, do you enjoy God having mercy on you? You enjoy that? You've been a benefactor of that? Yeah. So then what are you going to do to other people? This should change everything about us. Now, I will say this, that without repentance, uh, mercy really isn't able to be spent. And here's what I mean. If you reject that, if, if somebody rejects mercy and would rather stay under condemnation, then that's what they're going to get. Now, there's a point, and I don't know when that is, I know when that definitively is at the day of the Lord, but there's a point that can happen in people's lives, and certainly in eternity, when you have rejected the mercy of God, he's, he's, he's freely offering it, and you reject the mercy of God, well, then you get condemnation. That's the only other side to that coin. And can that happen in our relationship? Sure. Sure, it, 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 you, you can desire mercy, you can be prepared for mercy on somebody, you can be showing them mercy, and if they continue to reject that and push that back, then there's nothing you can do to give them mercy. See what I'm saying? 
They have to repent. They have to desire that. They have to live in that, accept that, receive that. Acknowledge that. And if they can't see that because of their sin, because of their desire not to, because it, because it calls them out as a sinner that is rightly condemned, and so mercy proclaims that if they don't desire that reality, then what can you do? But mercy is your response. A Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton said, Mercy in us is a sign of our interest in God's mercy. You blown away by the gospel every day? Then be merciful. Spurgeon puts it this way, There is mercy for a sinner, but there is no mercy for the man who will not own himself a sinner. You, you want to continue to deny that you have a problem, that you've transgressed, and mercy's no good for you. Mercy is literally to become the recipient of leniency. So there's somebody enacting leniency, not giving you the full uh, punishment for your deeds, and there's the person that receives the leniency, the recipient. So that's what mercy looks like for God's people, right? We've received mercy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who we talked about in Sunday school, said this, Grace is especially associated with men in their sins. Mercy is especially associated with men in their misery. In other words, while grace looks down upon sin as a whole, mercy looks especially upon the miserable consequences of sin. So that mercy really means a sense of pity plus a desire to relieve the suffering. That is the essential meaning of being merciful. It is pity plus action. Pity plus action. Do you, despite whatever sin has caused it, desire to relieve the suffering of your brothers and sisters. That's mercy. Uh, I think that's what you see uh, in the natural outpouring and living by the Spirit in, in the early church. They had everything in common. They're selling fields and lands and, and livestock to meet each other's needs. Now, we're not told why those people were in need. It was probably due to their sin or the sins of other people or just their position in life. But that wasn't the concern of the church. The concern of the church was to work out this mercy upon people by giving them what they don't deserve because we, everybody who has been entered into the kingdom, has received what we don't deserve. So as understanding and having compassion on each other as, as we find ourselves in, in miserable experiences. I've watched some of you. And act great mercy upon people's lives. And I've watched some of you do quite the opposite. But I'm telling you, I think there's a reason as Jesus is, is moving linear here, why he starts with merciful. That is everything. Without the mercy of God, we aren't here today. There is no church. There is no people of God. It's foundational. 
Now, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure means to be free of guilt or sin, without spot or blemish, blameless. And when we talk about the heart here, the pure in heart, it is the word cardia, right? Which we would derive our word cardiac fur, which, which uh, denotes things to do with the actual heart. But when we're talking about pure in heart here, we're not talking about you've got a good ticker. We're talking about the, the consciousness, the thoughts, the emotions, that seat from which all those things come from. So the, the pure, the, the spotless, without blemish in those things. And you and I have got to be uh, terrified at that point and say, how do we be that? I live with my thoughts. I live with my emotions. They're not pure all the time. So how? Here's how. Acts 15.9. He made no distinction between us and them, Jew and Gentile, having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's that word cleanse. You need to associate that with the word pure. Okay? Okay, how did he do that? He cleansed our hearts by faith. What's that mean? It means that we believed on him who has mercy and grace. And so what did he do when Abraham was that way? What did he do when Abraham believed God? What did he do when, when Abraham believed that God was having mercy on him, that God was enacting grace by calling him and, and promising him and bearing with him? It was counted to Abraham as righteousness. Righteousness equals purity. You don't enter the kingdom of God with a blemish. Jesus was completely perfect, and he inherits the kingdom because of that. So if we're going to enter it through Jesus, then we're essentially entering it through his spotlessness, through his purity. And God will do that cleansing. How about 1 John chapter 1, 7 through 9? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the pure in heart... I would argue, are those that are also poor in spirit. Those who mourn are broken over sin, and so they take that to their Father who is able to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And that cleansing that he does is through the blood of Jesus, and it says in verse 7 of, of 1 John 1 that it cleanses us from all sin. So that as Hebrews says, we... Uh, have no need of the blood of bulls and goats and rams. The blood of Jesus is the once for all sacrifice so that no more do we have to make sacrifices year after year for our sins. His sacrifice cleanses us from all sin. You're made pure by him. Period. So as we started this talking about how you, how you become this, how you enter into the kingdom, how these become characteristic of you, uh, by being born again. How are you born again? You're born again through him who makes you a righteous new creation. 
a second birth. The thing that Nicodemus doesn't understand at first. How do I enter into my mother's womb again? Don't understand, Nicodemus. This has to do with the heart. You're already created, you're already existing, but what doesn't exist in you is righteousness. That is what we have to create. How are we going to do that? I'm going to give it to you. Mercy. Because you deserve what? Wrath. The beautiful part about that verse is what the pure in heart get. What do they get? They get to see God. Now, think about this. John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. What? Well, if you know John's prologue, you know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us back in verse 14. So when you get to verse 18, Jesus is the personification of the glory and the goodness of God. So what's Jesus telling his disciples when they ask him to show, show them the Father? He says, have you been with me all this time and you still you don't know? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. This is glorious. Seeing Jesus is seeing God. And that's what we get as the pure in heart. That's incredible. That should be the reality that keeps you in the faith. If he is greatest treasure, if he is what you desire more than mother or brother or father or sister or child, then the, the, the very thought of the sight of him is what causes you to continue forward until you reach the end and get to see him. That's a promise. Notice as he says all these things in verses 7 through 9, he says, they shall, they shall, they shall. Jesus declares this to be the, the reality that you come to if the first things are characteristic of who you are. And don't be burdened down by trying to make those characteristic of yourself. We've already established that Jesus makes those characteristic of you because they're characteristic of him. And when he saves you, he places you in him. So that Paul consistently says, put on Christ, put on Christ, put on Christ. Jesus identified himself with you. Are you going to identify yourself with him? If you don't acknowledge him before men, he says, then you're not worthy of me. But if you do, then he'll acknowledge you before the Father. What's that mean? He acknowledges that you're in him. And if you're in him, then you receive the inheritance that he received. You receive the purity that's in him. You receive the righteousness that's in him. Therefore, you receive the presence of God, who Jesus sees, who Jesus makes known, who Jesus himself is. So let's look forward to that in Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as a crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, 
through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer... Go over there. I don't know. It's stuck. I apologize. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Here's the, here's the glorious part. They will see his face... Back up here, I'm sorry. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. But do you see verse 4? In that place where the river of life is flowing, where the throne of God and the Lamb are, where those trees are bearing that fruit that's healing us, where there's nothing accursed, where we're worshiping the God, God before the throne and the Lamb, we will what? See his face. One of the awesome parts about that is verse 5. It says we don't, need, we don't need night or day. We don't need the sun or lamp. His glory is going to light that up. We're going to see everything by the glory that's radiating from his presence. We're going to behold the face of God. Now, back up to verse 3 in these Beatitudes, how could that ever be our place before him? Because of mercy. He would allow you to see him. Now what about the peacemakers? Verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. There's a great passage that encompasses a lot. But, but I want you to see in this passage what's being described. Because at all times, we're, we're just trying to point to Jesus, okay? So if you, if you want to know how to be merciful, if you want to know how to be pure in heart, if you want to know how to be a peacemaker, you look at Jesus. Paul does this all the time with Jesus, right? You want to know humility? Hey, what about Jesus, who is God, yet took on flesh and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross? There's humility. Okay, what about being a peacemaker? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Now, here's peacemaking who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, mercy, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, being peacemakers. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So peacemaking first begins between us and God. Who can make peace between us and God? No man can. But God is the author 
of reconciliation. Jesus becomes that man. He becomes representative of flesh while he is also God at the same time and reconciles in his body God and man. Isn't that amazing? So you have to have a God-man to reconcile God and man. That, that unbridgeable chasm span that's been created because of our depravity has been bridged by the mercy and grace of God in the flesh of Jesus. So that as his flesh is ripped open under the wrath of God, what also happens is that we're brought into the holy place. The blood pours out, cleanses us, and brings us in to his righteousness, therefore able to see God. That we might become, verse 21, the righteousness of God. Because what? He became sin. So these glorious realities are at play if we would simply meditate on them and let those change us and stir our affections for him and our affections for each other. When you meditate on these things about the gospel, namely that the Beatitudes are personified in Christ, then you have a fulfillment of what Jesus said were the two great commandments in the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You only get there by meditating on who Jesus is. He's been merciful to me in a way that is incomprehensible. This person that rear-ended me, big deal. Go on your way. God bless you. For 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. When you become like this, a peacemaker, you exhibit a glorious characteristic of your Father who is in heaven, who works out peace and who in fact sends the Prince of Peace. Notice that label for Jesus in Isaiah, Prince of Peace. God sent. What's that tell you? It tells you that he's about making peace. It tells you not only that he's about making peace, that he is making peace. You do that with your enemies? You send out your best self to make peace? Or do you desire to bring condemnation on their head? If you're honest, you probably mostly desire the latter. But if you're in Christ, something begins to take over that flesh. And you remember. You remember how you were treated. This is... This is the gospel. And again, the gospel is only possible if God is a peacemaker. If God's not a peacemaker, no gospel again. Right? Because it's all dependent on him. We're, we don't desire peace with God. Romans 3 makes that clear. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. No peace we desire. Somehow we think we're going to survive under the wrath of God by ignoring reconciliation. No. God takes the initiative to make peace. 
John MacArthur says, at least four things characterize a peacemaker. First, he is one who has made peace with God. You understand how peace works, how it comes, what, what happened there. Second, a peacemaker leads others to make peace. We, we don't just hide that. We talk about that. We display that. We show people that. Because everybody is naturally an enemy of God. So we proclaim peace with God. It's possible through Jesus. Third, a peacemaker helps others make peace with others. We don't play the political game and, and pit somebody against somebody else. Because maybe somehow we'll benefit from that. Or whatever the case may be. No. We desire for two parties to make peace. We understand peace vertically with God. Therefore, we communicate peace horizontally with each other. And we promote that. We propagate that. That's, that's what Matthew 18 is. When Jesus is leading uh, people that have been wronged through this, this, these steps, they are steps of reconciliation. The last resort is, is that, fine, you don't want mercy, you don't want reconciliation, then I don't think you understand the gospel. But the, but the point is reconciliation. The point is forgiveness. The point is mercy is being enacted, brother. Do you recognize it? Yay or nay? If you don't, okay, then we need to work on the gospel. If you do, praise God, we've just covered a multitude of sins. Fourth, a peacemaker endeavors to find a point of, of agreement. So if, if we're ever at odds, Remember where we start in Ephesians 4. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one gospel. Are we good with that? Okay. So how does that communicate to the situation we find ourselves in? Hmm? You married? You need to remember your foundations of that marriage. Hopefully, they were the gospel. And if they are, then you find that point of agreement. We agree that the gospel is this, the mercy of God. I'm a sinner. Okay, let's start there. Which means I may be wrong because I'm a sinner. And the things that are true about us, the things that we're able to do now, the things that we value most are mercy, forgiveness, grace, truth. In verse 9, it says they should be called sons of God. Romans 8, 14 through 17, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. I want to focus on the word sons for a second. You understand that word sons is in the masculine, but what, what is in play there in the Greek is, is it's, a, it's a legal term that describes those who have inheritance rights as God's children. It uses the masculine form, but it encompasses the feminine. In other words, man and woman become, through Christ, those 
who inherit as his children. So, you peacemakers, who have had peace made between you and God by Jesus, and you seek to do likewise, that's your desire, that's your hunger, that's your thirst, that's righteousness, then you are proclaiming, the Spirit is bearing witness with your spirit, that you are what? Children of God. And there's hope in that. If you're called sons of God, because that's characteristic of you and your desires, then you're going to inherit what his son inherits. So that whether or not your, or your peacemaking bears fruit, whether or not your, your mercy is received, you have certain things that are promised to you, that are guaranteed to you. That simply by trying to be faithful in those and desiring those things, you know what is coming for you. The hope of the gospel. The hope that his children have as they live these things out and maybe, as we'll see at the end of the Beatitudes here, verses 10 through 12, may be persecuted for doing those things. My, my hope in, in living in Christ is not completely based on what fruit is going to come from that. It's based on being faithful to him who has promised me an eternal inheritance in his presence. You see? So that your, your, your happiness doesn't rise and fall by what becomes of that peacemaking or that mercy. Your, your happiness is in the fact that that declares or encourages or gives you confidence that you have been made a child of God. That's why you're happy. If this is based on results, then we're going to be depressed most of the time. <laughs> Bad news, but true, right? We live in a fallen world, and that takes over people's lives way too much. But if your happiness and blessedness are found in what that means for you, then you can continue to live in this. Therefore, Romans 5.1, it's not switching for some reason. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You believe? You believe that he's the way? Well, he's the only mediator between God and man. So the way to be reconciled to God, if that's your desire, is through him. You can enjoy what he's won for you. Peace with God. There is no greater terror in all the universe than to be an enemy of God. And there is no greater blessing in all the universe than to be a child of God. And that's only possible through peace by Jesus. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. Those are yours in Jesus. Mercy, yours. Purity in heart, yours. Peace with God, yours. But it all hinges on him. That's why we look to him. That's why we worship him. That's why we trust in him. That's why it's all about him. That's why he will receive 
worship, adoration, and praise both now and forever. So I ask you, do you know these things about him? Do you know how he's communicated these things to you? If not, then I hope you've understood a little bit about the fact that he is communicating those things with you. Is your desire to be a recipient of those things from him? Then I would tell you that they're yours. Repent and believe the gospel. You'll be saved. I pray that you would respond to him as you're led to, and then we'll stand and sing together.